I don't know what those white people in this country feel. I can only include what they feel from the state of their institution. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Welcome back to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts Katina and Darren. Today's topic is faithful anti-racism. We are joined by the Dr. Christina Edmondson and Chad Brennan. Dr. Edmondson is a higher education instructor and organizational consultant in the areas of ethics, equity, and Christian leadership development. She's also a co-host of the Truth's Table podcast. Chad is coordinator of the Race, Religion, and Justice Project and founder of Renew Partnerships, a Christian research and consulting ministry that focuses on diversity and race and faith-based organizations. They join us to talk about their book that was recently released called Faithful Anti-Racism, Moving Past Talk to Systemic Change. It's a really great book, and we'll say this again at the end, but if you go in the show notes and click the link, you can purchase the book and get 30% off if you use the code BHISTORY. That's B as in boy, history. If you use that code the next two weeks, it'll be 30% off. We asked Christina and Chad a bunch of questions about the book, and we were so thankful that they joined us and shared a little bit more about their thoughts and perspective, as well as the book. We hope you enjoy the conversation. So today we have two very special guests, um, Dr. Christina Edmondson and Chad Brennan. They are the co-authors of a book that they've written called Faithful Anti-Racism. So as we start off, whenever we interview our guest, we like to know you, get to know you uh, for the human beings that you are outside of the things that you do, and maybe even what's fueled your passion for the work that you do. So I would like to say welcome. Thank you so much for coming. But also, I would like to know who is Christina Edmondson? And then who is Chad Brennan? All right. That's a question right there. Um, Yeah. Well, thank you all so much for having us today and giving us an opportunity to, again, tell tell who we are, but also to uh, really center this project, this book that we worked on through through the crisis, through through the COVID. Um, um, So, yeah, Christina, born and raised in Baltimore City, Charm City. Um, So that shapes a lot of... um, yeah, a lot of a lot of my personality, a, a lot of my experiences, um, a lot of my sense of self, product of the um, Black uh, Progressive Baptist denomination. That's the denomination that's associated with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. That's that was that's my childhood roots anyway. Um, but have worshipped with and um, served and um, assisted and corrected in a variety of. <laughs> denominational and theological spaces over the years. I've got a background yes. in Christian higher ed as well, as well as uh, having taught at HBCU, Historically Black College University, and attended two of those. Um, yes. Uh, academic background is uh, social sciences, so sociology, race, class, and gender, family systems, my master's degree, and a PhD in counseling psych with an emphasis in trauma. Every kind of trauma you can imagine. Wow. Awesome. Um, 
And uh, yeah, but on a, a more personal note, I, I'm a, a, a friend, a daughter, a, a mom. Um, mm-hmm. That's probably my, my, my toughest and most rewarding job is the mom of a, a tween and a teenager. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's real out here. They keep me humble. Two girls. <laughs> yes, um, indeed. I, I can relate. And an adult. Now, Tween, now, teenager, now, and adult. Now, Ch- Chad is a veteran. Chad is a, Chad is not is not new to this. He's true to this. So he can tell you. He's an OG. In <laughs> 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 and, and the parenting game. But yeah, that's that's a little bit about me. I love I love the local church. And yet, I think because of my trauma therapy background, I am able to talk really candidly and honestly about our problems. Yes, indeed. Um, that must be addressed because I really do believe there's enough grace to tell the truth. So yes, indeed, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. me. So you're a modern day prophetess. Come on, sis. <laughs> and a podcast. And well, a podcast. The that they're disliked, maybe. <laughs> right. That that part. And, and, and the and in the sense that you're prophetically speaking to you know the issues, but also you are a podcaster of one of my favorite podcasts, which is Truth's Table. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, yeah, it's a thing. We, we're, I think we're uh, considered, um, yeah, veterans in that sense too. We've been around yeah. for a few years now, and and um, yeah, that's that has been a labor of love, but it's been a great opportunity to connect with people all around the country. Uh, first and foremost, Black women, who is our kind of our core targeted audience, but people from all all backgrounds um, that identify and connect with that podcast. So thanks for bringing it up. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, And Mr. Chad, OG Brennan, you want to tell us about yourself? Sure. Why don't I start with those ladies that Christina mentioned? I am blessed to be, have four amazing ladies in my life. So I've got a wife, Lori, and I've got three daughters. So I've got a sophomore in college, a senior in high school, and a sixth grader right now. Wow. So that's my most exciting um, part of my life. And um, so as far as what brought me here, the real quick journey is I grew up in the suburbs of Dayton, Ohio, um, really didn't engage on issues of race hardly at all until I was in my early 20s. Um, until I was in my early 20s, I, I probably would have been some combination of like trying to avoid saying anything offensive. I probably would have described myself as colorblind. Um, in many ways, I was kind of cynical towards um, descriptions of descriptions of systemic racism in society. So I would have in many ways been um, a person who would probably push back on a lot of the work that we do now, um, which actually, um, you know, I wish that wasn't my story, but I'm thankful because that gives me empathy and also understanding. So as we do training around the country and write and, and do various things, there's very few questions or pushback that we get that I can't go, okay, yeah, you know, I get it. I, I've been there and I can relate to that. So Um, After that phase, I went into ministry for nine years. I served in the Middle East, Queens, New York, um, and then in Columbus, Ohio for a couple of years. And it was when I was living, uh, my wife and I were living in Queens, New York, that that's really where issues of race in the United States really began to become front and center for me. Uh, Began to study scripture more um, in the the process of doing ministry cross-culturally and multiracial churches and in all these different contexts. So I began to have my eyes open to uh, my limitations, my lack of scriptural understanding in this area, um, and then just also my own prejudices and my biases and, and those kind of things started really started getting challenged in that space. So about 16 years ago now, um, left the campus ministry and started an organization that helps with assessment and training for Christian organizations in this area. And I would love to say that 16 years ago, you know, we had it all figured out and jumped right into it and got it all right. But honestly, uh, especially those first seven years or so, um, I think we got a lot wrong, honestly. Um, and that's, we write about that some in the book, is really emphasized a lot on just bringing people together of different races, kind of multi-ethnicity and multiculturalism and cultural intelligence and those kind of things, which 
can be really helpful and beneficial. We can talk about that. But Mm -hmm. in many cases, um, that can kind of really miss some of the underlying dimensions that continue to perpetuate dysfunction in the church um, by just doing, you know, cross-racial unity gatherings or even multiracial organizations if they're not done in the right way. And so the process of working in those spaces and seeing um, both the challenges, but then also the damage that those kind of environments produce as we measured that and we did assessments and surveys um, just kind of shifted our focus and me personally more towards issues of justice. And uh, that's really what the focus of the book is all about. Hey, I want to, I want to jump in before you start getting some good questions from these two, but you know, as someone who is kind of hearing, hearing you guys talk and even, even knowing the name of the book and maybe you just talked a little bit about stuff, but like, why, why I'm imagining some of our listeners are like, why, why do we need to talk about this stuff? Why is, why is that important? So like for you guys, for both of you, like why, why, why talk about this? Why learn so much? Why eventually write a book about it? Like what's, what's y'all's reasons for, for kind of getting into the space? Oh, well, I'm black. (laughs) 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 What airs that? And and I would say even more so than that, uh, because everybody who's black is not a social social scientist, right? But, um, but on a very personal level, I have black children, I have black daughters Mm -hmm. and the biases that people hold, Mm -hmm. um, that in, and when you combine that with power that they might have, social power impacts laws and stereotypes. Mm-hmm. It impacts their reality, impacts their safety, yes. it impacts their sense of self. So on a personal level, as a mom, I really care about my children. <laughs> um, yes. But I also think because of my faith convictions, um, we really are called as a Christian, I'm called to love my neighbor. Now, I don't think you can love anybody that you don't know. Uh, you, you know, you can imagine yes. a, a spouse, um, you know, a, a spouse being asked basic questions about their their other their spouse and not getting it right. Like, you know, what's your wife's favorite color? You know, where did they grow up? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't remember. We would we might start questioning. Do you really love your wife? Do you know your wife? <laughs> right. And likewise, it's really impossible for us to even step up to the plate to begin thinking about that calling to love others without understanding or wanting to understand or know who they are. And and that also means understanding the uncomfortable truths and the way that our own stories, our own backgrounds, our own cultural groups uh, interrelate with other people as well. And, and that's when it gets, I think, anxiety provoking, but still necessary because love can be quite co- uncomfortable, um, the calling that we have to love our neighbor. So I think my faith conviction, certainly on a personal level, and also I've always been just interested in understanding people. Um, my academic mm-hmm. background, as I mentioned, um, it's largely in the social sciences, starting off broad sociology and then kind of funneling down into um, psychology. And I, I don't think there's anything on the planet more interesting than people. And there are amazing things on this planet. <laughs> there are very yeah. interesting things on this planet. But I just feel like people are right at the top of that list. Wow. Yes. We are complex, complicated. Um, and and individually are we are, but also our relationships with each other. So I, I think the nerd in me is, is fascinated by that as well. Um, so those are the three things I would say off the top of my head. How about you, Chad? You know, I, when I first began to um, see the value in really focusing on cross-racial dynamics, and initially for me, that was conversations about multi-ethnicity and multiculturalism, like I mentioned. Um, mm. It was a, initially, it was kind of a missional slash unity focus. Um, I saw a lot of Bible passages that talked about 
um, loving, like Christina said, and also unity in the body of Christ or unity in the church and those kind of things. So I thought, oh, well, clearly I'm supposed to do this. But then the more that I stepped into that, I realized the complexities of what really does keep us divided. And then the more that I began to do that work, the more I began to see the dysfunction in the church and how that hurts us personally and also in our institutions. And then it just became a passion because I see just the incredible pain and suffering and hurt and loss um, that results as a result of this, both in U.S. Christianity and also our society. Thank you. Um, yeah, both of y'all's answers. That 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 was rich. Thank you both for sharing. So I'm going to go ahead and get a, a few of my questions out of the way, and I'm going to turn it over to Garen. So a couple of things for me, and I'll just go ahead and throw uh, both of them, or two or three out there, and you guys can just take it away. One, we have a really diverse audience. And so while the podcast is called Black History for White People, um, and we three are Christians, we get a lot of people who are who would consider themselves anti-racist or beginning to do the work or in, in different stages of the work and may not be a Christian. So we hear a lot of times from our more liberal listeners, stop talking about religion. Why are you always talking about religion? And I always push back and say, you can't talk about black people, the diaspora, period, but you can't talk about black people in America without talking about how faith um, is interwoven. So, and then from Christians, we get, why are you always talking about race? And so there's that intersection I'd like you both to kind of speak to. And then also, you two are an unlikely pairing. We're talking about a white man and a black woman. And it just don't go down like that every day. And, you know, not, not, not equitably, you know, not where you have a, you know, highly educated, you know, very qualified voice of a black woman to speak into this issue. Most of the time when there is a white person involved, there is this appropriated wokeism that happens. And we don't get that from, you know, your book. We don't even, I don't even get that from just talking to both of you right now. So it takes a level of humility as a white man, Chad, to step into the space and not be intimidated by the greatness of black womanhood, you know. It, it takes that. But then it also takes a leap of faith for a black woman to step into a space of trust because we've seen so many, you know, white Wokians that will hijack the platform and not lend, um, lend uh, the mic or give the mic over to or yield to the black voices. So I want you guys to speak to that. And then the third thing is, what is anti-racism? See, I'm getting all mine out the way, so y'all can Man. just take it, take Whoa. it, take it. I want to hear from you today. Was, that was a, I'm excited. <laughs> take it away, Christina. Which one of those you want to take? Well, I know. I was, I was looking at you trying to like uh, uh, using telep telepathy. I was like, which one will you take? Um, so, what was what was the first one? Give me the first one again. The first one is about the liberals saying, you know, stop talking about religion when it comes oh, to yeah, yeah. anti-racism, and Christians saying stop talking about race. Period. They should totally read this book. I'm not even trying to plug it. Yeah, <laughs> that's what we came here for. Yes, indeed. Um, yeah, but but I, I think it'll help them to both of those mm -hmm. uh, groups to understand why 
it's interconnected. So um, the the uh, the American story, the the, the story of the, the founding of the United States, has right at its at its epicenter this relationship between race and the development of race and racialization, <laughs> yeah, and religion. And so it's mm-hmm. hard to have a conversation about. America, about equity, about what is race. Um, there was a time period, if we're looking at even the 1700s, where, where, um, where, where, where Christian and white began to be used interchangeably yes. uh, in major documents. And so those, now that might seem odd to people, but those things were very, very interconnected. Um, problematically so. Problematically so. Um, and so I think that it's hard for us to have a conversation. Uh, racism, um, I would make the case, requires a lots of different conditions for it to persist. There are a lot of people who probably are like, why are we talking about this topic? They're like, oh, I just I like all the people, just treat everybody the same. You know, that, that would be their argument. But racism has to have these kind of pillars around it to keep propping it up. And I would give you a theological reason why I think that is, um, because it goes against kind of human design, like God's design mm. for people. Right. So it, so it needs these forces to keep it propped up. Uh, and mm. one of those forces that it needs moral complicity it needs moral mm. justification. And one of the best places to go to get that is religion. And so Come it on. came in really handy in the 1600s and 1700s mm-hmm. and 1800s and 1900s. And if you look on Twitter today, to have religious figures uh, blatantly maybe advocating for segregationist practices, making theological justifications for enslavement, um, or telling people they really shouldn't care about racism today. Mm. Good Christians don't do that. Like right. that's that's always that's been baked into the story. So I would say for the people that are like, ah, uh, you know, the, the Christians who are saying let's not talk about race, and for the progressives who, for example, may not be Christians but they may be progressive Christians who would say, you know, why are you talking about religion so much? That those things are deeply inter- interconnected in this American narrative, and that's that's the context that we're talking about race in. So. I, I knocked out one of those. Chad, go on, take one of the other two. <laughs> <laughs> I got to give you guys a shout out first before I move on to the next thing. So I, in preparation for this, I had a chance to listen to a few of your previous podcasts and they're Thank fantastic. You. I was super impressed. And so for somebody who may be questioning the integration, so in the book, we focus on how whenever you look at racism in the United States, you almost always see three things at work, economic forces, political forces and religious forces. Mm. And so if you, if you take any incident and just say, how are economics in play, how are politics in play and how are, how's religion in play? And so I think it's just fantastic the work you guys are doing. And I really liked, I just listened to the cost of racism. Fantastic. And then also, I can't remember what you titled, but the rise of the religious right. Is that right? Is that the one? Yeah. 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 That one right there, man, that's, Mm. that's really, really helpful context for anybody who would say, why do I need to, talk about religion because it's been such an incredibly powerful force in, in terms of racism. Yes. So um, I, how about if I answer the one about how we have this awesome combination, unusual combination. Okay. I'll go for that. So I am, I'm super blessed to have had some really great um, relationships with African-American women for the last two decades. Come on. So it has been incredibly enriching in my life. Um, Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil has been a mentor for probably well over 10 years now. And has just been incredibly encouraging with our work and um, Mm. just has had some really key words of um, blessing and also instruction and even challenge. 
at key moments in my life. And then um, there's a co-trainer that we've been working together for over 20 years, Michaela Gregory. Um, we went to college together and then we got into this work. And so she and I often travel around the country and co-lead trainings together. And man, I've just learned so much in our time doing that. It's been incredible. So I have both experientially and then also obviously learned a lot from many other African-American women around the country that I've not had the chance to build a relationship with. Um, but it was just super fun when I met Christine about three years ago now. So we we met at a, a joint meeting of other leaders who are working in the space, obviously um, super impressed and, and known of her and her work. And and I also enjoy Truth Table. And um, so yeah. it was just fun. And it was it was really encouraging when she said yes to partnering on this project and it hasn't been the least bit disappointing. That is so awesome to hear. Um, and thank you so much for listening to our podcast. And, you know, I'm glad that it is encouraging to you, especially since you guys have a whole book out. It just and, and you're doing the work and speaking and giving language to the whole concept of anti-racism and what it means to be a true anti-racist. But what is? What is an anti-racist? What is anti-racism? Yeah, so 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 we we made a we made a decision to <laughs> knowing that this would cause some people to cringe if we titled this book Faithful Anti-Racism. And I had been teaching a course already with that title. I've, I've mentored a number of um, of pastors and uh, organizational leaders, um, and so in that leadership development cohort, I'd been using this language of faithful anti-racism. And so we we debated like, would we would <laughs> would we use this? <laughs> we could probably find other names of this book. And we know that at this point, I would say that people have been so deeply socialized, and I would even use the language propagandized um, yes. to have a knee-jerk reaction to the word anti-racism. But I still wanted to push into it. So uh, most people are thinking about anti-racism from the last five to ten years. They're probably thinking about about some contemporary figures, um, some social science, but also historians like Ibram X. Kendi, for example, probably comes to mind for some people. And they are, and they are thinking largely of a um, academic, but also kind of pop culture, like it's made it into the pop culture vernacular, uh, mm-hmm. this, this concept. Uh, and they're associating it with, with someone like Kendi, for example, um, uh, when they are thinking about anti-racism. When I use the language of anti-racism, someone with a social science background, I'm actually knocking on some doors that existed from a really long time ago. <laughs> so yes. as long as you have had race and racialization, you have had people who have resisted that concept. And yes. you've had people like abolitionists. Um, and so the abolitionism uh, tradition um, is really, I think, the, um, is the origin story of anti-racism. Yes. And that goes back hundreds of years. And, for, and, in, and in that, we are able to draw on uh, Mariah Stewart and Frederick Douglass and in more contemporary context in the last hundred years, you know, Ida B. Wells, for example, yes. Fannie Lou Hamer, et cetera. Yes. And that, that's happening way before the last 10 or five years, right? So anti-racism really is an acknowledgement. There's some presuppositions in there. There's an acknowledgement that the, the context that we are in uh, is racist. And now when people hear that, they kind of get in their feelings. But let me just explain it simply, that there's a race-based bias, <laughs> that mm-hmm. your racial group uh, warrants you or, or affords you or gives you uh, particular access points or deprives you of those. Um, and that racialization um, was necessary in order to have a race-based 
chattel slavery system, which lasted for well over 200 years in the United States, um, because we needed to quickly identify the people, the group that would be at the bottom of that system. The work of people like Charles Darwin was also really informative and helping to shape this kind of categorization of race. And so that's what race was about um, starting from the 1600s, that it's not just um, we're not talking about cultural designations. We're talking about uh, race kind of categorization for the purpose of stratification. Mm -hmm. So categorizing people, not just to say, oh, this is interesting to learn about them, but to initially explicitly stratify them. And I would make the case still today to implicitly stratify them. And we can see that um, amongst a variety of data points where we see racial disparity in place. And so anti-racists believe in resisting that. They would say that that exists. (laughs) Now, some people would say that doesn't exist. If you don't think that exists, then obviously you can't be an anti-racist because you don't agree on on the bottom fundamental presupposition that racism is a thing. Okay, correct. But but anti-racists would say, uh, and this this would borrow from Kendi's language, which I think is helpful. That it's not good enough to say I'm not a racist, right? Um, Because that's kind of that's kind of in the water. Um, So we would have to actively be resisting the racism, thus the anti-peace, the pushing back on it. And the ways that we push back on it, right, is within ourselves, our own our own thinking, our own kind of biases that we have in whole, but also in policies and laws um, and practices. Um, and so we have to engage enough to have an awareness <laughs> to understand yes. the way that, that racism is working itself out in, in our society today. So that's a long answer, but I, I wanted to at least give some context to the people. So I want to... First, just say that I loved your book and would recommend it as highly as possible to the audience. Like, I think it will probably actually be my number one, like, give this book to, like, a starter book for somebody, uh, particularly somebody who's coming from a Christian or, you know, uh, Christian-esque, you know, Christendom, American, Christian-y. like, Christian <laughs> tangent um, background. To get them Christiany, to get them into the conversation and to get them started, um, I think it was just a, a great resource. So thank you for it. One of the things I want to kind of talk about here is just how, for me, I struggle with just looking around. And you you talked about how Christians on surveys and survey research that you guys conducted gave answers to some of the questions that weren't just not an improvement from. Uh, non-Christians or people who are coming from a non-Christian background, but we're actually worse. We're actually more racially problematic. And for me as a Christian, and I think for our listeners who are coming from a Christian background, there's this disconnect between what I see in the Bible that seems so obvious and Christianity in America when I look around and see it. And so for that, I just picked out three passages I'm going to read real quick that I think if, if conservatives knew that these were in the Bible, they'd try, probably try to get the Bible banned from, from schools these days <laughs> with all these book bans, because this would get accused of being CRT. But God says, Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. The oppressor will come to an end and destruction will cease. The aggressor will vanish from the land. In love, a throne will be established. In faithfulness, a man will sit on it, the one from the house of the David, one who in judging seeks justice and speeds the cause of righteousness. Learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. 
And then I see that everywhere in the Bible. This is not just like I one time compiled five full Word document, 10 point font pages of verses just like this. And then you look at Christianity uh, in America right now, and a majority of it is like doesn't reflect this. How did we get here? All right, I'll I'll, I'll take a stab at that one. Um, <laughs> one of the things I do enjoy about your podcast is the fact that you talk about issues outside of race. So I'm going to get to your question, but I just want to touch on the fact that any time that we as Christians ignore or neglect portions of Scripture. It's a combination of the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? Like the the three great adversaries of our souls. And um, so I think that if we look at this in any area of morality or ethics, we're going to see Christians will have a tendency to downplay parts of Scripture that are really challenging them. It's why we need the Holy Spirit. It's why we need other Christians. It's why we need good preaching. It's why we need to study the Scripture for ourselves. So I don't think it's unique to racism or injustice or social justice in the sense that it's different. But I do think that it is very unique in the United States, kind of going back to what Christina said about kind of the mental scaffolding that we have to produce as white people in order to justify systemic oppression and injustice that we are, um, we've inherited 400 years of religious, social, um, justification for oppression and um, creating systems that give us advantage. And so we've been taught well, I guess, over many generations about how to ignore those type of passages. And um, we've picked that up, I think, in the church to the degree that's now, you know, quite obvious that, especially with our research, you know, we see these things and um, uh, we even did a, we go into it in the book, but we, we ask a very similar verse to the one you read. And, and we ask the, the, those Christians who identify themselves as believing that the Bible should be used to determine what was right and wrong. And we ask them, well, do you think there should be laws that protect um, foreign workers? And um, about half, I can't remember the exact number, but a large percentage said yes, but then a large percentage didn't say, said no. And then we asked the question again, so kind of similarly worded. And we said, well, in the Bible, it says such and such, such, such. Well, we saw when we asked that question again, about half of the people, I think, or about 67%, if I remember right, actually now. So a large number of those people who originally said no, when we actually gave them a verse, flopped and said, okay, yes, now I think we should do that, which is great. It's also, that's a great incentive to teach all of the Bible, because apparently a lot of those people didn't even know that verse was in the Bible. But then we still have this whole other 30% of that group that was like, even though a Bible verse is there, you know, I've still got, you know, some kind of justification for neglecting it. So it's kind of a roundabout answer to your question. I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, We could go into some of the specifics on it, but I just think we can't understand why Christians can ignore and neglect so much of the scripture without seeing the 400 years that got us to this point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in Faithful Anti-Racism, y'all describe magical thinking. Can you define what magical thinking is and how it doesn't work to create change? And then start to talk about how you've actually seen change happen effectively and what are some of the obstacles to change in in organizations? Yeah, so magical thinking basically are, um, you know, scenarios that we make up (laughs) in order to um, psychologically uh, justify um, or to explain a, a, a scenario that's before us that we may not want to reckon with. It may, uh, it may 
cause us to have some type of existential crisis, um, tension with our family systems. I mean, all, there are all kinds of <laughs> there are all kinds of consequences for I think reckoning with, uh, for example, the topic that we're talking about, racism. And so, um, magical thinking becomes a way for us to manage kind of the cognitive dissonance that we have, the way that mm. um, you know who it is that we believe we are as people. Most people would say that they think they're good people, um, but at the same time, maybe um, participating in unjust practices or ignoring them. So we have to figure out how to reckon with that. Like our brain will keep nagging us. <laughs> uh, and, yeah. and, and unless we fix that, you know, um, and if we decide we're not going to fix that, then we create um, kind of cognitive scenarios to, to make sense of it. Uh, doesn't mean that it's truly uh, full of sense. It could be nonsensical, thus magical thinking <laughs> uh, can take place to explain um, mm-hmm. why something is existing in front of us. And we can also employ kind of magical thinking uh, as a way to, to fix a problem or to fix an issue, right? So we think about an issue of racism, which has multi-generational, economic, psychological <laughs> ramifications that we can look at in a, a variety of spheres of society. We can look at uh, disparities in health and in income and in, in the way neighborhoods were shaped and set up. I mean, across all these different variables. Um, and so it, it really takes some work. Uh, it takes, um, it takes some, uh, I think, I think cognitive fantasy uh, mm. to be able to, to kind of wish that away if you're not going to do something about it or to respond to that by saying like, Oh, you know how we can fix that longstanding systemic issue or all this racial disparity. Let's just have coffee together. I think that'll do it. Like, let's just, (laughs) you know, let's just invite a black person over to dinner. This is going to fix the problem that we have. And and I would say that that likewise is also a a bit of magical thinking um, to think that we can just kind of have, we can coffee our way uh, through hundreds of years of uh, systemic oppression. Well, and I think it's Charles W. Mills who mm-hmm. speaks, who who coined the term um, white ignorance. Mm-hmm. And it's just that willfulness of, of, of ignorance in order to ignore the obvious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, psychologists talk about, uh, str- you know, and, we've, and, and strategic ignorance. Um, yeah. And, and in that sense, um, that, that particular reference is thinking specifically about how that group who identifies as white might, in, might be, um, might engage in this um, kind of selective ignorance, right? As to not change the phenomenon of racism that is before us. Um, but strategic ignorance is something that all of us can employ at times. It's kind of like, uh, I don't mm-hmm. want to know. <laughs> right. right, right. Gotcha. And, we, and I imagine that all of us. Have have matters and things in our lives um, that we yeah. don't we don't really want to know more about quite yet, um, and Makes so sense. we can find ourselves employing strategic ignorance. Mm-hmm. So, is tokenism something you would put under the idea of magical thinking? And can you kind of explain what that is and how it's powerless to change organizations? Yeah, so I, I'll let I'll let Chad take it away. But I was going to say, you know, tokenism just obviously it just it uses people, right? Uh, so it's yeah. a, it's a puppeteering. Um, it is it's a mask uh, that. Uh, is with it's devoid of power, and ultimately, um, racism and stratification is about power. And so, um, someone kind of playing a role without actual power is is going to be a problem. That they're going to be being used in that scenario. But Chad, take it away. All right. You know, I so we uh, one way to think about the book is like the first half is kind of foundational things that we felt like were really key for people to know before we could actually get to the real specific you know, here's the nuts and bolts of what we recommend, you know, that Christians do. 
And so we felt like we need to lay some foundations in the past, in the present, um, biblical concepts, biblical principles, current data, all those things. Um, but before we get to the second half, that's where that magical thinking and magical chapter that faithful anti-racists don't rely on magic. And so what we wanted to do first was cover both on the individual side and the organizational side. Here are things that we frequently see people use that don't work. And so sometimes um, in, uh, no solution is actually less problematic than the wrong solution. So we have to kind of understand this is where we're getting it wrong. And so, yes, tokenism um, is absolutely a, a big issue. We see it all the time in organizations. So on the organizational side, tokenism, kind of pseudo power sharing, um, super, super common. Um, a couple other magical things that we see all the time too is training programs that are going mm. to, you know, fix everything. And then those have all kinds of problematic elements to them. They can be great. Christine and I lead them all the time, but training problems can be really problematic if we, we think they're going to do too much. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of things I need. And we even have in there too, like statistical diversity, like I mentioned, um, a lot of organizations yeah. say, well, all we need to do is get diverse. or so we need to reach some kind of statistical threshold. If we're only 20% of people of color, then now we're statistically multiracial and we've arrived and, and all those things. But we see, and um, Corey, Dr. Corey Edwards has done some great research on this as well, is that you can have 80% people of color in a Christian organization and it can still be white dominated. Yep. So statistically, that doesn't tell you much. You, what you really need to get at is, is what's going on. Are you using a tokenistic approach? Is it performative? Is it, you know, true leadership sharing? So um, yes, there are lots of things that we use that don't get, get the job done. Yeah. Well, and I mean, even when you, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, ahead. no. I was, I was going to say to Chad's point, you know, that one of my last international trips before uh, COVID shut the, shut the party down um, mm. was, was to South Africa and to, to Chad's point about how we can often think the amount of people, if there's a, a that, that percentage piece that's going to shift issues related to racial inequity South Africa, I think, is a glaring example of uh, of a nation that is overwhelmingly, you know, upwards to eighty percent Black South African, uh, and a ten percent largely Afrikaner European uh, immigrant um, African population that retains significant power. And even with um, a Black African uh, government, uh, the the economic system of South Africa is largely in the hands of white Africans. And so, uh, so, so I think that oftentimes we, we think, you know, if we can get the picture to look a certain way. <laughs> if, the, if the picture looks inclusive, that means that we have properly uh, dealt with this matter of, of power and equity. And oftentimes we have not. That's, that's the uncomfortable part. Mm -hmm. And I think you guys talk about how that can even be counterproductive because then it leaves the leadership feeling like yes. they've done something when really they haven't. And we also go to, uh, quickly, we, we also go into two really important concepts there too, assimilation and code switching. So a lot of times what we see in organizations is that the people of color in the organizations are either assimilating or code switching. So there's this impression of diversity, but they really can't be themselves. They're forced to kind of change who they are, or be silent about who they are. So it, there really isn't diversity in the organization. It's just superficial diversity. So I don't want you to necessarily reveal all your trade secrets here, but when you're doing a workshop or like, like what's the solution then? Like, where do you go from there if you don't want the magical thinking, but want to create real change? And some of our listeners 
presumably. Actually, I know that some of them lead organizations. So how do they start to create true change. Yeah. One thing I'll throw out quickly is that, you know, people have to have enough emotional, I think, emotional maturity to start to do this work. That doesn't mean that we're going to wait for everybody to catch up. <laughs> so in other right. words, if, if you have power and position, I would encourage you to do what is right today. <laughs> um, but for, for those people who may not have the ability to do that, right, then um, you're going to want to make sure that the people in your organization have um, kind of the emotional maturity to be able to approach this this topic well and deeply. And also, even though we said it's not it's not a, mum, a numbers game, numbers do matter. And so I, I do care about uh, people's hiring practices, how many employees of color actually make it through to the interview stage, <laughs> how far they get in the process. So those things actually are important to document, right? So what we're measuring can be an indication of what we value in an organization, but oftentimes we're measuring the wrong things. <laughs> um, and so I, I, I would say, yeah, preparing the people well in terms of just emotional health and obviously tying that into the mission of the organization is just something that, um, you know, trainers and organizational consultants do. We want to make sure that this is not a, an appendage to the organizational organization's mission or identity, but it is a it is a clear fruit of it. It's deeply rooted in it. So if we're working with a church, um, this this should be an easy thing. <laughs> an easy case to make. Um, not always, but it, but it should be. But with any organization, we just want to make sure that this work of um, pursuing anti-racism within their practices is tied into their missional identity. Because it's going to get quite hard. Mm. It's going to get really, yeah. really difficult. And it's going to be easy to kind of cut and run unless this is who you are. It's going to need to be who you become. So that, that's how I would just start that there. Yeah, kind of related to that, I would just mm -hmm. say that it's really important to have a, I, I would argue as a Christian, to have a biblical and informed approach. So that's one of the reasons I love your podcast. I think you're doing a fantastic job of helping people to have foundations to understand these, um, these com really complex um, topics. So you got to need to understand the history of race in the United States. It's also really important to understand the history of race in your own organization. So a lot of these organizations, denominationally within the organization, and even if you've only been a church for 30 years, well, I guarantee you there's a race story there. So like, what is that oh, story? Yeah. You know, getting, putting some mm -hmm. handles on the, how have, how have our hiring practices been handled? Um, have we shared leadership? Why not? Are we ignoring those passages you talked about? So those kind of things like being honest about the past in society and ourselves and our organizations. Um, so a lot of times when I work with leaders and we observe often is that there's kind of this, like, I know I need to do something to kind of jump into it. But it's not right. really well informed. It's not really well thought through. And then there's failure, there's hurt, and then they get set back. Oh, I, you know, I'm not going to mess with that. But it wasn't because it was a bad idea. It's because they took it in a really kind of presumptuous, uninformed way and, and kind of wreck things. And so that's a big part of it. But then in the book, we go into a lot of other things we could talk about if we have time. But I think it's really important to get some outside perspectives in many cases, um, mentors, coaches, um, people that are that are knowledgeable on these issues, and I, it can be really, really beneficial for those people to be outside your typical circle for a variety of reasons. One is you avoid groupthink, so the people around you in your organization, it's very likely that they're going to be thinking similarly to you. So if you bring in some people from the outside, they're going to have a fresh perspective. That's really important. Another reason why it's really beneficial too is the people around you, oftentimes, especially the people of color, will have a price to pay. So if they're candid with you about, hey, you know, that was kind of insensitive the way you said that well yes that could distance you from them it could even in many cases you could lose your job or you could lose your ability to get promoted or a leadership position so many times people of color will talk with us kind of 
offline and say, oh, I wish I could say such and such to so-and-so, but they can't because it, it literally will hurt their career. So, but if you bring in an outside coach um, and you're honest with them and you allow them to really understand what's going on, then they can be more candid with you because you can't fire them. So um, that's one piece. And then another, we spent a whole chapter in the book about the importance of measuring progress. So, you know, we're really, especially modern day churches are really into measuring things, but oftentimes we don't measure things that the Bible measures. And I think, you know, to your point about those hundreds of passages you mentioned, um, the Bible places extreme emphasis on issues of justice and in our dynamics with one another. And yet oftentimes that's completely neglected when we measure progress and success. And so I'm hoping and praying for the day where that's a more integral part of what Christian value, um, Christian organizations value. Uh, real quick, talk about that. Uh, there's like a survey that uh, you have created for people both to take for themselves like an inventory and I think for their organization as well. Um, and we'll, we can put the link to that in the show notes, but tell our listeners what they would get out of going through that. Yeah, I'd love to. So we, um, we as, a, as a foundation for the book, we did a two-year national research project in partnership with Dr. Michael Emerson, who wrote Divided by Faith. Um, to our knowledge, it's, it's the largest study of racial dynamics in U.S. Christianity that's been conducted. If you're interested in learning about that, you can go to rrjp.org. That'll tell you all about our two-year national research project. Coming out of that, we use that research, our own experiences, a whole bunch of other leaders, and we developed a new assessment tool. We've been working on it actually for years. It's been a really big project, and it's really close to going online. It's not available quite yet to the public, but literally within weeks, we hope to have that available um, to awesome. get take that assessment, um, both for yourself and your organization. You can go to rrjp.org, um, and um, if it's not available when you go there, sign up on the newsletter, and we'll let you know what it is. I've got a quick question before we enter time. You guys both seem like you're not angry people. Like you guys have been smiling a lot during this. Uh, and so I just wonder as somebody, you know, I, I'm like, you know, I, we just have this little, little podcast. You guys are seemingly doing like some really great work with leaders and you travel and it, it just is like a different level. So I'm, I'm assuming you run into some opposition and some like disappointment, but maybe from a high 10,000 foot view, like how do you guys not just give up and just get so mad and just want to like throw in the towel and like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's difficult. I, I run into opposition in my little tiny world and I'm like, I'd get so disappointed, but how do you guys, you know, how do you stay healthy? <laughs> well, I hope I'm healthy. Lord help me. Um, I hope I am. So, um, a couple of things. And I think that's a, I think that's a fair and it's a really, really good question. Um, I, I don't necessarily think that anger is an issue. I think that there's, there are times when we're not angry enough and we're not angry about the right thing. (laughs) So I think, uh, so my sense of kind of being angry uh, at injustice kind of, hopefully it's a righteous indignation, right? Um, But oftentimes what's underneath anger, anger is kind of one of those like second tier emotions typically. What's underneath it usually is, is great disappointment. It could be fear. Um, it could be the sense of being let down. And I think I try to get to what is underneath my anger um, uh, it, it, so that that anger doesn't necessarily run me, right? That I can experience it, I can process it, but it's not dragging me all around. Um, and, and again, that, that requires, I think, some intentional work kind of looking within to do that. The other thing I would say is that the, the, the reason why I do this work, and I, and I, I laid out that early on um, with the kind of initial questions, um, 
I, I think in order to have stamina in this work, and obviously we are, are, are people of faith, we are Christians, it's going to have to be undergirded by love. Now, I know that sounds like, <laughs> that may sound like like a tree-hugging good time for some people that are listening, but, but I mean, it has to be at the root of this. Because um, if it's fear, uh, fear only lasts for so long, and then it eats you up. Um, and again, it oftentimes is a foundational emotion, but then it can turn into anger. But love, I think, fuels the type of imagination as well as truth telling. So love fuels an imagination that this could actually look different than it does. This could look different than it does. But it also lets you tell the truth mm-hmm. about it really is jacked up. Like as, as I look at uh, both the sociological uh, data, as I look at what we're seeing um, Yes, we're seeing just throughout the states on this issue, it it does not look encouraging. It it looks yeah. uh, troubling and disturbing, um, and yet mm-hmm. love I think fuels me to have kind of this uh, what I would call a holy imagination of the possibilities of what could be or what what can be, um, mm-hmm. and then also love fuels us to have something called courage, and you cannot do this work without courage. Right now, there are uh, I, I imagine countless pulpits. Uh, in the United States um, of, of Christian churches, where you have leaders who have have yet to say January sixth was a problem, <laughs> right? And and it's, and it is because of a lack of courage. It's because mm-hmm. of a lack of yep. courage, or, or maybe they don't know that it was a problem, but it was a problem. Um, and so uh, we we have to be fueled by love, I think, to have the type of courage that calls us to show up and to say things that maybe people don't want to hear, um, but are necessary for our communal health and growth together. Yeah. And you mentioned love and fear. And one other that I, I kind of just was recently thinking about is shame and how uh, a lot of on the left, shame is used as a way to push back against racism and evil, which shame, I think, can prevent negative behavior, but it can't actually inspire positive action. It can just like stop the bad, yeah. but love, And I would make no. the case that you, you can't shame white supremacy. Mm. No. Mm-hmm. You can't do it. I mean, uh, in the United States, we, you know, this is, we, mm. we had slave blocks where children were, were stood before people and sold. Mm-hmm. You cannot and you cannot shame white super, white supremacy away. It, it is indeed it is indeed shameless. Now, by that I don't mean that white individuals cannot experience shame, but I mean this phenomenon of white supremacy. It, it's quite resilient. I mean, you have to remember what it endured. It endured the stacking of bodies on slave ships. It endured mm. uh, the genocide of indigenous people, um, internment camps for many groups, but specifically thinking about the Japanese in the country. If you could shame white supremacy, Mm. we would be good right now. (laughs) We would be good right now. So, and and also I just don't think that's a way to win people. Again, this is a part of our faith, Mm -hmm. my faith conviction. I would say Chad would agree that we, um, to use real Mm. Christian language, we, we wrestle principalities. We win people and not the other way around. I have no interest in wrestling people. Mm -hmm. So or winning over evil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Instead, um, we're going to push back against the, the wicked and broken system, and we're going to try to win our neighbor, even the one who thinks that they're our enemy right now. Ultimately, I think God has the final say about that. That's so good. So as we wrap up, um, I'm going to land the plane with something I'd like you guys to speak to, because the bottom line, as we wait, and as long as anti-racism has to exist— the oppressed, we are tired. 
we are exhausted. Um, the fact that anti-racism is even a thing, the emotional, psychological, physical, sociological, economical um, toil that it's taken on a 400-plus year collective of people while we wait, we weep, we wail and mourn. I, I'd like for you to just speak and encourage because what we're seeing specifically in the in the church, as we're speaking as Christians, there's a tremendous fallout from racism that's really happening. Um, and it, like it, it's really impact the church, and the church is losing a hold. We we're seeing white people, young white people specifically, that are leaving white churches, evangelical churches, and because of their parents and their elders' hypocrisy and racism, and we're seeing young black people leaving the faith. And and when I say leaving the, the faith, I will put that in quotes because, you know, there's so much nuance there. But we're seeing um, from deconstruction, which, you know, some have tried to demonize that whole process, which I think that we should all be kind of engaging in deconstructing and um, challenging the elements of Christianity that we have that are man-made and not an extra biblical, extra biblical, and that uplift and uphold racism. But we, there's a shaking up that's happening um, and a great fallout that's happening. And for those of us who are BIPOC, like we are weary. Um, and we're about to enter into the resurrection weekend, Passover being crucified and him rising on the third day. And there are so many, in, in, and with COVID even, that's amplified it. And with the world events that have happened, that's amplified it. Can you guys speak to that and encourage the weary listener, the weary soul? Well, like Christina shared, you know, as, as Christians, I feel that we, um, you know, we, we do truly have access to inexhaustible love and inexhaustible hope. And so when I, my tank's dry and I'm discouraged and I'm really frustrated, um, that is the well that I have to go to. That's where I have to um, return to Christ to basically say, you have to give me what I need to continue to do this work. And, um, it is, it's just, it, it's even the, even the, you know, tomorrow's good Friday. So, you know, even Christ's death on the cross and its power over all things evil is such an incredible source of hope and joy for this work. I mean, so that's, that's everything that evil could throw at him and he wins. So, you know, that, that gives me great hope as I think about this work. There's nothing that can be thrown at us. There's nothing big, too big, that's impossible, um, that's too big for Christ. Yeah, and I and I definitely. Um, I'm a person who lives Sunday to Sunday. Um, Come on. And when I think about the Christian faith, for me, I'm, I'm largely thinking about two 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 things are at at work. Both one is resistance. Yeah, resisting my my own kind of sinful inclinations and my own the own my lies in my own brain and resisting the sins in the world. Um, injustice and cruelty and war and wickedness. So it's 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 we're called to resist, right? 
ourselves and, and things outside of ourselves, right? Sometimes, sometimes people uh, overemphasize one of those things over the, yeah. <laughs> over the other, and then we're also called to rest. Yes, we're called to rest. It, it's like a it's a command, y'all. Yes. It's a command, yes. and I think it has to be a command because otherwise, we might actually think that we are holding up the cosmos. Yeah, and we're not. We're not. <laughs> and, and for the and the Christian life actually starts with the Sabbath. Mm. It starts the, the the week begins, the life begins with resting. And from rest, we move from rest to do the resisting. Um, and I have to constantly remind myself that as somebody who is quite um, just ungodly busy. Yes, <laughs> and, right. And Chad is not like yes, I know. Yes. But but I really do believe that we have to start from a place of rest. I can't. I don't know how we can expect anybody to have a good attitude if they're tired and they're broke down. And I think the way that and, and the sharpness that you have to have, I think, in order to gauge engage people mm-hmm. who um, are afraid and who are angry and who are, are having an existential crisis when you talk about the realities of racism. Yeah, because <laughs> they're like, but this is what my mom taught me and my and my my Sunday school teacher. They were so kind, and you know. What are you telling me about my my childhood church, right? Um, to be able to be present and to and to and to love uh, and to be truthful, right? To not break, y- you have to start from a place of rest. Like we're not working in order to rest; we start from a place of rest. And I I would whether someone's a believer or not, whether you're a Christian or not, I I would uh, co- I would commend that to you um, to sh- to shift a little bit to think about Sunday as our starting point. Um, to give us what we need to move forward in this work. And then ultimately, you know, I can't change people. I can't change a human heart. I, I have some skills as a psychologist to understand behavioral change and change process. Yeah, but I can't really change myself sometimes. Come on. You know, I can't really, yes, you know, there indeed. are things that I can't, you know, that, that I have patterns that I'm still trying to get unstuck from. So there's a sense of, um, I think, joyful and restful release that I'm going to do what I can. I'm going to sow seeds. I'm going to do good intentional work with the skills that I have. You know, we Chad and I have partnered together trying to bring together the, the best skills from our li- experiential skills, our lives, but also our academic skills and professional skills. And we've put it on the table and said, okay, Lord, use it. And, and we hope that what comes out of it is something that will really, really help and bless people. But ultimately, uh, we know that this, this work of heart change um, is not our is not our work uh, to do. We don't have that divine power. One last thing I want to throw in before you jump to the last thing is I want to mm-hmm. say too, in the terms of hope, you guys give me hope. Honestly, mm-hmm. like when I'm working with people around the country, like you guys, doing this kind of work in thoughtful ways, in honest ways, with a lot of hard work and insights. I mean, that's super encouraging. So, yes, keep it up. You guys are doing fantastic work. Thank you so much. And you guys are doing such a wonderful work. Thank you so much for this labor of love um, that you have put out and worked and collabed and, and put together for, for us to sh- give us a model of what, you know, the, the, and the framework of what a faithful anti-racist is and what that work looks like. Yeah, thank you so much. Every, we have a code yes. in the show notes. Go, go buy this book yes. and go read it. And tell all your friends. With the code, you get 30% off. Yeah. Check it out. So now's the time. Thank you guys again. Man, if you guys ever decide to do a podcast, you need to let me know. Let yeah. Because I'd be interested in helping with that. But yeah, but yeah thank you guys so much. You guys have been awesome. such a blessing. I wish we could talk more. It's been more, a great, great time. Um, 
And for me personally, just something that I need as I'm going into this weekend, because there's so much to be sad about, um, because we don't, we don't do church the same anymore. And we aren't like, there's ways that we've just been changed forever as a, you know, as a, as a generation of, of believers. And there's a lot to lament, but then there is hope and there's a lot to be um, encouraged and strengthened and joyous about. So, because he lives, he has risen. So thank you. Thank you guys so much. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank, yeah, thank y'all so much. And yeah, have, have, have a, have a joyful and honest Resurrection, Resurrection Sunday. Y'all the Lord, too. the Lord is not afraid of our real feelings. By no, the way. he is so not. You, you can come in there wobbling. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Your Crawling. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Well, yeah. Jesus really, really does identify with brokenness. Yes, he does. I mean, what what other God mm. says? I to identify with you, I will become like you. I will come bleed on. like you. I will sweat like you. I will cry like you. I will, I will weep over uh, a lost loved one just like you yes. do. And, and that way, when Christ intercedes now as our great high priest, he really gets it. He yes, really gets you. Yes. He really gets you. So anyway, good meeting y'all. Y'all too. Thank you so much. Y'all take care. Yeah. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, you guys. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you are looking for more information on what we discuss, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. And again, just a reminder, go buy this book. Use the link in our show notes. You can go buy the book at Ivy Press and use the code BHISTORY. That's B as in boy, then history. All one word, BHISTORY. And that'll give you 30% off for the next two weeks from the launch of this episode. So make sure you go buy it. You can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com backslash blackhistoryforwhite people. And just a reminder, very soon we're going to be launching a new website and we are going to be releasing a book in the coming months. And so be on the lookout for that. We're really excited about the opportunity of sharing a little bit more with the world in a book form. We'll leave you with this quote from the book, Faithful Anti-Racism. Imagine how different our society could be if our cultural and ethnic differences were a source of strength and joy rather than a source of division, conflict, and injustice.